chapter 5 and verse number 6. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse number 6. It says, Humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He does not say, God humble you. He says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, which means it must be something that we can choose to do. That he may exalt you, but at the time, his specific time that he has appointed for the purpose that's on your life. And that becomes a challenge at times because we want to be exalted when we want to be exalted and not wait for this due time. But he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that at the appropriate time, the appropriate time, God's the one that's going to exalt you. Now, how am I, man, woman of God, to exalt or to humble myself so that God can exalt me? He says in verse number seven, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. The casting of my cares on God is a sign to God that I am humbling myself for him to take care of the needs of my life. I'm humbling myself for him to be Lord of my life, to exalt me, to take care of every area of my life. It is the act of humility when I cast my cares on God. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. So you got to look at what is the opposite. When I don't cast my cares on God and I keep it, it's actually a source or a place of pride. When I don't place those areas that are near and dear to my heart in the hands of my God, then I'm not humbling myself under his mighty hand. A lot of people like to say we are carrying the care or I'm going to take care or, or do these kind of things or, or I got to take care of me because I really am displaying that I don't trust my God to be able to take care of me. And so he says, humble yourself. And the way that you humble yourself is by casting all your cares upon him. The way that I am to stay in the position where I am not in a position of pride where I allow God to be God in my life is by casting the cares of my heart on him. And we can even add the thing, leaving them there. That means when I cast my cares on God, that means I and I act like I don't have it anymore because he has it. Those areas where I don't know what I'm going to do. No, I cast my cares on God. And I thank you, Lord, that I believe that you are taking care of those things that I don't know about. Thank you that you're taking care of the matters of my heart. Thank you that you're taking care of the matters of my finance. Those things, God, that are beyond my reach. I cast my cares on you. I humble myself enough to know that that's beyond me. So I put them in your hands, believing you that your hands are bigger than mine and you're able to take care of me and exalt me at the due time. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you for this opportunity to cast our cares on you, knowing and believing, God, that you are indeed Lord of our life. You are the one that sees further than we can see. You are the one that's reaching further than we can reach, God. And so God says, you're God and we're not. We just choose to trust you by laying hold of your promises that we can cast our cares on you. And as we cast our anxieties, our worries, our concerns on you, we thank you that we believe we receive by faith the peace of God be, to be in operation in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, amen.
Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We bless you for this opportunity to minister to these, your precious people. Father, I pray, Lord, let revelation knowledge flow freely, unchecked, uninterrupted, and unhindered by any satanic or demonic force. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed speak through my vocal cords and think through my mind. I pray, Lord, all of you and none of me. I pray, Lord, let revelation flow, articulation of your heart flow in this house this morning. Thank you for those that will receive live, and we thank you for those that will receive by way of recording. Holy Spirit, you are indeed welcome in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you are our teacher and you are our guide, and we thank you that you will reveal and illuminate your word to us. Give us ears that we may hear what the Spirit of the Lord has for us on this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everyone did say amen. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father... I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to minister revelation of his word to me and how to apply it in my life on an everyday basis. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, help me this morning. All right. Amen. 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 Let's get our Bibles, if you will, and turn to Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter number four. We're going to be reading out of the New King James Version of the Bible. And then we're also going to be reading later on in the New International Version of the Bible. Galatians chapter four and verses number four. And we're going to look through four through seven. And the scripture reads, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, verse number six, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our into your hearts crying out abba father verse 30 uh, verse 7 therefore you are no longer slave a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of god through christ verse number seven, verse number 4 says again but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law. The Amplified Version of, that, of the Bible says, But when in God's plan the proper time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the regulation of the law, when the fullness of time had come. For the last couple of weeks, we've been ministering from the subject of how we hear from God, specifically how we are led by the Spirit of God. Well, we are not concluded in that series per se, but we are going to stop that series at the second because that is the directive at this moment. And we're going to look at some aspects of understanding the Christmas story. Aspects of understanding the Christmas story. And we're going to kind of lay out some of the things in regards to the significance of the Christmas story and how it relates to our lives and how it relates to our life of faith. 
The scripture says, this is the Apostle Paul saying in the book of Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And one of the important things we need to understand and recognize is that nothing that God does is without a purpose or a time or a specific season. Nothing that God does is without a purpose, a time, or a specific season. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1 says, To everything there is a season, a time for, to, uh, a time to every purpose under the heaven. So time was created, I heard Dr. Monroe say this years ago, was created to give uh, a time was created for purpose to be revealed, if you will, if I could say it like that. Time was created for purpose to be revealed. Everything God does has a particular time for it to be in manifestation in your life. Everything that God called you to has a specific season for it to be in manifestation in your life. Even when it's regarding the Christmas story or the story of Christ coming into the earth, it had a specific time attached to it. There wasn't a throwaway time that Christ shows up born in the manger. Everything that God does has a connectivity to purpose and season. In the book, um, Early Thoughts through, uh, early through uh, Christianity Through the Centuries, um, Dr. Kane Crane indicates that one of the things we got to understand about purpose of why God was born at this particular time is because the environment was ripe for his birth. In fact, the scripture or, or the, the historical aspects that we have to see is that because of the Roman occupation during this time period, there was a sense of unity among mankind in which mankind could freely uh, be involved with each other because of what took place historically with the Roman Empire. Additionally, we see that because of the Roman Empire, there was a free movement that took place in which everybody was able to move from place to place because they were occupied by one dominant government system. Previously, he had different systems throughout the region, and it restricted a level of travel in the environment in which Christ would be born. The scriptures or the historical reference lets us know that the Romans developed this aspect of the roads or the highways. So we think about the Jericho Highway or we think about when Jesus speaks about the, uh, the parable of uh, uh, how the, the man was beaten on the road or the highway on his way somewhere. The Romans invented this concept of developing highways by which people could travel to and fro. This was something that was specifically used by Jesus when he ministers from town to town. The Romans, in the, uh, they, they, they created this force or this military force, which actually when folks got born again later on, when they were deployed to different areas, they ministered the gospel in the area of their deployment militarily. And then because of the Roman conquest, people already had an openness to receive from God because they thought that the gods that they had been worshiping up to this point, this area of idolatry, they realized and they recognized these gods weren't powerful enough to be able to, to protect them against the Roman Empire. 
Why am I saying all this? Because everything happens for a particular purpose inside of the will of God. Jesus did not become or he did not get born into this manger in a vacuum. And I submit to you, if, if for Christ himself to be born at a specific season, at a specific time, everything that God's called you to do in your life has a time and a season attached to it. The word season literally means an appointed time. It means an appointed occasion. And the word purpose from, the, from Ecclesiastics means a delight, a pleasure, a matter, a valuable thing. To everything there is an appointed time. Everything that God has called you to, everything he's speaking to you to do has an appointed time attached to it. And a lot of times what happens is we want to get in a hurry and we don't realize that God is setting the environment up. And what happens is when you get ahead of God, God's like, okay, now you're outside of my will and you are in an authorized territory. He says, back up, do it my way, do it on my timing because there are things that are beyond what you can see, the environment that I'm setting in place for that thing that I've called you to fulfill. Now, Back over in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, it says, For but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. John 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, God so greatly valued the world. He so greatly loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he puts the caveat that whosoever believes in him should not perish is what the New King James Bible says, should not perish, which means that he came born, he became in the manger, he came to down the cross for our sins, but it's still a choice for you to believe in what he did for you on the cross. Well, we have to ask the original question, what is he talking about? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we should not perish. Perish from what? Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 16. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 16. Now in Galatians chapter 4, he speaks about the fact that we were born or Christ came born under the law. Well, we have two ways of looking at that. He's talking in regards to the Mosaic law, yes. But he's also talking about another law that rules up to this day where mankind is concerned. That law can be found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. And the scripture says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God is telling this man, man named Adam, in the Garden of Eden, you have free range in this garden. You have authority within this garden. You have the ability to do and create the things or this environment the way you want to within my dominion that I have granted to you within its limitations. He says you can freely eat anything and everything, he says, except for that one tree. He says, for in the day you eat of that tree, the day that you partake of the fruit from that particular tree, you shall surely die. 
Now, most of the time when we look at verse number 17, we think that's a suggestion. But this is, in fact, God speaking as king of the universe. This is God declaring something. It's the, 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 the Hebrew word literally means it's God to, that he's charging. He says, and God commanded. The Lord God commanded literally means he appointed. He placed in order. He enjoined. It literally means he constituted. Well, we understand naturally when we constitute things, that means we place it in a form called the law. This is the perimeters by which man is supposed to be governed. He says, listen, you can eat from this, you can eat from that, you can do this, you can do that. But from this tree, the day you eat of this particular tree, you shall surely die. This also means you'll be cut off from the things of God, you'll be disconnected from God, and you will physically die as well. Well, we understand what the story indicates that in Genesis chapter 3 that man ate of the fruit. The devil showed up in the form of a snake and he presented to him and her the same thing that he presents to us today. He presented to them an opportunity to, i.e., create a world that they wanted in their own image. He says, you don't really need God. You don't need all those laws. You don't need all that stuff. You don't need all those perimeters. Well, what all those perimeters? He said, don't eat of this fruit. But he says to them, you don't need to do that. You can do this. And in our lives, that's exactly how the devil presents himself in our very existence. He says, you don't need to do what God's commanded you to do. You can do this instead. Well, you do this instead. And just like Adam and Eve, what you do is you create a system by which you are now under the dominance of the enemy instead of the preeminence of God. Because you have decided to obey him instead of obeying what God said. Now, this is one of the biggest things that we have to understand about this concept as well. Is that a lot of times it looks good. The devil presented to Adam and Eve a situation that looked good. But it had consequences attached to it that they could not physically or fully see. When the devil presents to you an opportunity to do something that's outside of the will of God, he always comes to show you the pluses and how this could happen, and this is a shortcut to this, but he never shows you all of the consequences that are attached to you doing things his way and not operating God's way. So it was in the Garden of Eden that we see that they lost everything. They lost their position with between their relationship with God. They lost their position of authority on the earth. They lost everything because they bowed the knee to this foreign intruder inside the Garden of Eden. Well, now we have a problem. Adam and Eve are the only humans that exist at this point in history. Inside of Adam is every seed of every person that would be born. Inside of Eve is every egg of every person that would eventually be born. So the day they committed this sin, sin entered into the earth and it was placed on every single human person that would ever come after this likeness of Adam and Eve. Sin passed from generation to generation to generation. Now we have a problem because now sin has infected humanity. What are we going to do? Because God had already created an order within the Garden of Eden. What are we going to do? God speaks to the woman and he says, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. Well, we understand naturally that women don't have seed. They have eggs. 
So what is he speaking of? He's talking about something that's going to take place in the future. That's going to place humanity in the position where they can be born again. Born again from what? From death back to life. Where they can be born out of sin into back to a relationship with God. This is called the incarnation. The incarnation. The word incarnation literally means the embodiment of God in the person of Christ. It is the act of being made flesh. The incarnation literally means it is the act of grace whereby Christ took on the human person or the human nature into his union with the divine person to become man. Christ is both God and man. What does this mean if we just said the way we would say maybe on the street. This is where God himself says, okay, because man has made this error and the only way that we can correct this issue is I got to put on flesh myself so that I can come down stand in the same position that Adam originally had to redeem them and give them the opportunity to be back in connection and reconcile unto me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45 literally says that Jesus is the second Adam. He says, and so it was written, the first Adam was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 46. How bet that was not the first, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. He says, first Adam, the first Adam was a living soul, but the second Adam is a quickening spirit. Jesus represents, this is the reason why if you look at the Gospels, oftentimes Jesus says, I come not as the Son of God, but he uses a term, the Son of Man. Jesus had to be born into the world by the way of the natural in order for him to be in the same position that Adam was so that just like the day you are born, you are physically born as seed of your natural father as seed of his father, as seed of his father before him, and it traces all the way back to the original Adam. When you are born again, the Bible says you are born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed by the word of God. So that's why when you are born again, you are born from the natural Adam into this new Christ, and you are Christ or inside of Christ, and then you're born of his spirit, and he becomes your spiritual father. Does that make sense? Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 6 says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God uh, to be used to his own advantage, out of the NIV. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the likeness of God and being formed in the appearance of man, be, he, uh, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death of the cross. Even death of the cross. Now, Christ born for the purpose of redeeming man, which means to purchase that same, that penalty of surely they shall die, that back from God and taking it upon himself. Now God says, the day that you shall eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. 
Well, what happens is Jesus takes the position and he takes, because he's the second Adam, when he dies on the cross, he takes that punishment. He takes it upon himself that he separates himself from the Father God and he goes into hell on our behalf. This is why he says on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because Father God has to turn his back on his son at this point to take, as Jesus takes on the nature of sin itself as he dies on the cross. The only thing is, when he dies on the cross and he goes into hell, he doesn't stay there because he never committed any sin. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but let's back up. <laughs> Let me back up just a little bit, slow down just a little bit. Christ dying on the cross becomes the substitute for all of humanity taking the place of us having to be under that you shall surely die aspect of the judgment of God. Jesus, though, however, says that certain elements or certain areas of who he is within the book of John one of the things that we have to understand, particularly about Jesus, is that he declares certain things about who he says he is. Let me say it like this. It is impossible for you to say that you really believe and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and not believe what he says about himself. It is impossible for you to believe that Jesus is Lord and have an opening for other gods within your life. Because Jesus says, I am the Christ, the Messiah in John chapter 4 verse 25. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the truth. He says, I am the I am. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says in John 10 verse 36, I am the son of God. He says in John 11 verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And then 14, John 14 verse 6, he says, I am the way. In order for us to believe that Jesus is Lord, we have to believe what he says about himself. Now, this also means that I cannot entertain that there is another way to God. If I really believe that Jesus is what he says or who he says he is, then it does mean that I can no longer accept that there are multiple ways to God. This area theologically means that I have to become a exclusivistic person in my theology in which yes I believe that Jesus is the only way by which you get saved Jesus is the only way by which you are born again the scripture declares that he is the second Adam which means that we don't need a third fourth fifth or sixth so if Muhammad shows up and says, no, 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 Jesus was a prophet, that means he's saying that he's not Lord. That means he's saying that he's not the Messiah. That means he's saying that he is not the way, the truth, and the light. And you've got to choose which one you believe. Do you believe what Jesus says about himself? Or do you have another theological position that is now beginning to sit in your heart that you are giving equality to? The story of Christmas is a story that begins with this area of faith. 
believing in what he says about himself. The story of Christmas is indeed the story of the incarnation. It is God becoming flesh, being born of man so that he can redeem humanity to himself. Now, what is the Christmas story or what does the Christmas story teach us practically in regards to our faith? The first thing we got to understand, they say it teaches us that God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. Every promise of God in him is yes and amen. God keeps his word. He declares in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. And the story of Christmas is exactly that. The story of God fulfilling what he said back then in the Garden of Eden. That's the reason why when Jesus is born, what we see is that the angels show up and, and they say, glory to God in the highest among earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Why? Because God is keeping his word that he is born in the flesh. The second thing that Christmas teaches us is that it teaches us how to begin or bring God's assignment in your lifetime how to bring or fulfill God's assignment within your lifetime. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So the story of Christmas, the story of the nativity is a story that shows us how to bring up the past, the purpose and the will of God in our lives. And the third thing that the story of Christmas teaches us is it teaches us that Christ in heaven is our example of conceiving and delivering God's design and his purpose to the earth. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is our template of how you do this thing called life. He is our template of how you fulfill perfectly the will of God on the earth. So, the story of Christmas, therefore, is essentially God's strategic pattern for success. The story of Christmas is God's strategic pattern for success. I heard Dr. Monroe minister this a couple years ago, and there's some elements of this, of his sermon that I, I just incorporated in here because it was just so good. You don't need reinventing the wheel. What is God's strategy for success? He says, God's strategy for success and how you bring about his purpose within life is displayed within the story of Christmas. He first shows you how to conceive God's plan. The second thing that he shows you is how to believe God's plan or how to believe it. And the next thing is how to protect God's plan and how to deliver it to your generation and how to make it in a reality within your environment. How to conceive the plan of God for your life, how to believe it, how to protect it, how to deliver it, and how to make it a reality within your generation. Well, we're not going to go through every single one of these this morning. We're going to look at this first area of how do we conceive the plan of God. How do we perceive or conceive the plan of God? Let's look over at Luke chapter 1 and verse 11. Luke chapter 1 and verse number 11. The word conception literally means the process of being pregnant. It is 
the originating of something in the mind, or I can add the term in the spirit of a man. The process of being pregnant. When we are hearing from God and he's leading us in a certain way, in a certain, to fulfill a certain purpose in his divine season, then essentially the first thing that we have to do is conceive it in our hearts. Well, as we see in Luke chapter 1, he shows us a template in the story of Christmas of how do you conceive the word of God. We're not going to finish this this morning, but we're going to start here with looking at this man named Zechariah. Luke chapter 1 and verse 11 says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah is essentially, he's going into the holies of holies to pray and spend the time with God. This is his time to do so. And he goes in and the angel of the Lord shows up and he starts talking to him. He says, verse number 12, and Zechariah saw him and he was startled and he was gripped with fear. And verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Watch the term, your prayer has been heard. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. He says, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because the thing that's on your heart, that prayer, it's been heard. Your wife will bear a son. Well, what was going on with them is essentially they had an area of infertility. They had an area in which they were unable to get pregnant. They had spent many years trying to get pregnant, to have a son, to have a daughter, any kind of kid whatsoever, and they were struggling in this area. And this was something that was weighing heavy on his heart. And even when he was in there praying, he was praying about maybe perhaps this area that was on his heart, but he wasn't praying from a position of faith. He was praying from a position of, Lord, help me deal with the fact that I'm never going to have a child. Lord, let me deal with the fact that, no, this is never going to happen in my life. God, essentially, can we get this idea of him praying, God, heal me in this area because this is something that I really wanted. And the angel of the Lord appears to him while he's in the middle of this prayer and says, your prayer has been heard and you're going to have a son. And then he talks, uh, verse 16 and 17, about the fact he'll have the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be a special child. Verse number 18, to watch this though. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Let me, let me back that up. He asked the angel, how can I? Now, you're talking to an angel. How can I be sure of what you said? He says, watch this, I am old and my wife is well along in years. So he's telling him a natural fact. We old now. And we shouldn't be able to physically have a baby because we're beyond the time where you're supposed to have a baby. He's talking to an angel. A lot of times we think that maybe if we got a word from God at church or an angel showed up or some miraculous thing took place, we would just naturally believe. Evidently not. That the Holy Spirit can move in an audience. He can move in a crowd, give you a word from God. But if you don't mix faith with what he said, you won't receive it in your life. 
for Zechariah on this hand, God had already said, this is a part of God's divine plan. So he says, no, 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 we got this got to happen. So he says, watch this, verse number 19. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. So he says, boy, don't you realize I am Gabriel. I stand in God's very presence and God Almighty sent me to declare to you that you're going to have a son. This should be proof enough. In fact, Zechariah should have had enough confidence just in this word alone because Zechariah at this point already knew about Abraham and Sarah. So he had this in his, in his knowledge bank that God can give a child at an old age. But yet he said, I am not sure that this can manifest in my life because really he's displaying in his heart, I have a belief system that I'm beyond that. I have a belief system that this can happen in my life. He says, verse number 20, but now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because, watch the term, you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. I submit to you that the way we conceive the things of God is first through conceiving it, through receiving his word to us. Gabriel showed up and said, you will have a son. And what he was supposed to say is, amen, I receive it. But he said, how I be sure of this? And Gabriel said, okay, we got an issue here. You're not going to be able to speak any further because of the fact I can't have you messing this up. This is a part of God's divine plan. And because of the fact you don't believe it, I can't have you speaking against your future. There are a lot of times in our lives you wonder, why am I put in this position where I'm quiet and I'm alone and I can't talk to nobody? Maybe it's perhaps because God says, you are not conceiving what I said and I got to put you in a position of isolation for this season right now until you shut your mouth and open it only in agreement with what I said. The display of belief systems is what we see in manifestation with Zechariah. He sees an angel of the Lord. He sees a manifestation of God's presence in his life, yet he chooses to believe something different. Something different. Now let's look at this again. I've indicated this before, but my assignment is to explain this again. What is the difference between doubt and unbelief? What is the difference between doubt and unbelief? Doubt is when I'm simply unsure if God will for me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, haven't, I don't have any experience at this. I've never actually seen this. So I now have an area of, eh, I'm not, eh, maybe he will, maybe he won't, this area of doubt. Doubt can also be the result of a simple lack of knowledge of how things work. Well, maybe I just got born again, or maybe this is my first time in a church that reads the Bible, or this is my first time actually spending time in the Bible. So I'm not exactly sure how all this goes together. I'm willing to believe you, God, but I got some areas where I'm like, I'm not sure how exactly this works. Doubt can also be the result of more focused attention on the carnal or natural facts more than spiritual truth. 
I'm spending a lot of time. Now, God says, by his stripes, ye are healed. But I'm spending a lot of time on WebMD. I'm spending a lot of time over here. I'm spending a lot of time on this other stuff. Getting all these other facts about it. And I'm not looking to the Holy Writ to find out what God said about it. Because whatever the facts are, what God says trumps that. Now, what is the unbelief? Unbelief is a system. It is a way of thinking that is not in line with God's word. It is a way or a system of thinking that's not in line with God's word. It is the act of the will to disregard God to simply believe something else. The angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah and he says, you're going to have a son. Zechariah said to the angel of God, how can I be sure of this? Because, and he fills in the blank with a natural fact. We is old. So he tells him where his belief system is, that we are too old to concede. The angel says, I stand in the presence of God and I'm telling you the truth. But his unbelief shows up and says, this is what I believe. Unbelief is therefore the result of believing natural law over spiritual truth. Unbelief is not, therefore, non-belief. You believe something. It's not non-belief. You can tell where somebody is because they will always open their mouth and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what you will find when we were talking in terms of unbelief is they have a different belief system other than what God says. I've said in the past and I'll say again this morning, doubt is something that we can immerse in the word of God and just stick with the things of God and we can just eradicate it by just, just giving it more new information, more new information. This is what God says about this. This is what God says about that. This is what God says about finances. This is what God says about healing. This is what God says about that. We can immerse this doubt so that we can drown it out. But unbelief, on the other hand, has to be repented of. Because it's a way of thinking. It's a system. It's the way you were brought up to believe this instead of what God says. It's the examples or, or the time you spent with other people in their environment and they've told you their belief system. And you've taken it on as yourself. And when God shows up to say, no, this is what I say about the issue. You say, I reject what you say, God, because I want to believe this. Unbelief, therefore, comes from a Greek word which literally means faithlessness. It means disbelief. It means unfaithfulness or the word disobedience. Unbelief is something that has to be repented of because I believe something. I have something stuck in my mind that is contrary to what God has said. Now, let's back up. Luke chapter 1 and verse number 5 indicates to us, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, so he tells us who he is, who belonged to the priestly division of Abinadab. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, which means they were of the priestly line. He says, verse number six, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the laws or the Lord's commands and decrees, watch the word, blamelessly. In other words, they were good people. And the point that I want you to understand here is you can be a good person, a righteous person, and still be a person in which unbelief is sitting in this area in your heart. 
they did not believe God concerning that area because this was an area they had been struggling with for years. They've been struggling with this reality of infertility for years. So that even when God sent an angel to tell them they were going to have a son, this area of unbelief had grown so strong in their life, he wouldn't believe what God said. Verse number seven says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Let's drop down to verse number 24. So evidently, the will of God in his life was able to manifest regardless of his belief system, but it had everything to do with him shutting his mouth. It had everything to do with him not cursing his future with his mouth. And so the angel said, you can't talk because right now your talking is not in agreement with what I am saying that God said. And so your mouth has got to be closed for a season. But evidently, Elizabeth got pregnant, so there were some things that were taking place at the house even though he couldn't talk. Because there was not a supernatural conception with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now watch this, verse 24. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and watch this though, and for five months remained in seclusion. For five months she remained in seclusion. I was looking at this and meditating on this. Why did she remain in seclusion for five months? Because she was at a 20 week of her pregnancy. 20 weeks in her pregnancy is the time when the baby begins to kick naturally. They didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't have the ability to go down to the OBGYN and do all these kind of things. So they didn't have any way to verify that she was pregnant other than what she naturally had in her body. And so she waited to about five months in, in seclusion. And this is a display, if you look at it this way, of the fact that she had gone through some issues previously. Perhaps she had got pregnant before and lost the baby. Perhaps she had multiple miscarriages in her life. And she said, this time I'm going to get away from everybody for these five months until I start showing that I'm having this baby. So she protects it. She stays away from everybody because she had gone through some things. Verse number 25, watch this. And it says, and the Lord had done this for me. This is Elizabeth speaking. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken, watch this, my disgrace from among the people. So it was a disgraceful thing during the time of Elizabeth not to have children. So when she becomes pregnant, she secludes herself because she wants to make sure that it's real. It's also a display of the fact that maybe she didn't fully believe God either in this area. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where where you are starting to believe the natural more than you believe what God says. Have you gotten to a place in your life where not even God himself showing up on the end of your bed telling you something is enough to convince you that it's going to happen in your life? It's very easy for us to look at Zachariah and Elizabeth and sit in a seat of judgment, but there are times in our life where we can be so convinced because of our experience, because of what we've been through, that God is never going to move in this particular area, that we move to an area of unbelief. Unbelief. Let me give you these, and then we're gonna, I'm going to share this area up on Thursday. Conception concepts. Let's look at this. Conception concepts. How I receive the word of God. How I conceive what God has for me. Conception means I have to change or I change. It changes you internally first. 
in person before in public. When you really have conceived the word in your life, it begins to work on you in private first. Elizabeth secluded herself because she wanted to make sure this is really working, that I really am pregnant before it's displayed publicly. Conception is a divine interruption, changing your rest and needs for nurturing. When you're naturally pregnant, I watched my wife go through this at least twice. It changes her rest patterns because she has something on the inside of her. It changes her the way she, 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 she eats, the way she feeds, if you will. It changes her nurturing patterns because she has something on the inside of her. Conception causes rapid growth or outgrowth of the normacy. She outgrew her natural clothes because she's pregnant with something. When you conceive the word, then the natural environment that you might be in right now becomes funky to you. It's a little different because I'm outgrowing this environment that I'm in because I'm pregnant with something. When I am, conception means that you have to protect the pregnancy. You can't do everything and be active before everybody. When you really have conceived that word that God has given you, I can't do everything everybody does because I'm pregnant with something. I can't go everywhere that everybody else has been going because I'm pregnant with something. I got to separate from certain people, certain activities because I'm pregnant with the purposes of God. When I am pregnant or when I conceive the word, that means it will begin to make things uncomfortable until delivery approaches. There, I'm uncomfortable in this environment. I, I don't sleep well this way. I, I, I got to study a little differently. I got to work a little bit harder because I'm pregnant with something from God. Conception also means it will require endurance and others to help you push in delivery. Anytime you're pregnant and it's time to deliver uh, the baby, one of the things I noticed uh, when, when my wife was pregnant and we were in the hospital, it was at delivery point that everybody's beginning to show up in the room. For a long time, it was just me and her. We're sitting in the room. I remember when Rama was, was getting ready to be born, we, it was me and her in the room for a long time, just, just me and her, just me and her talking. And she was getting ready, and they were checking, and they were checking, and they were checking. It was just me and her. And then when it came time for delivery, it seemed like out of nowhere, nurses began to come. Folks began to show up, and they began to wash their hands and, and look at the sink and do all kinds of things, show up. And, they, and, and it's because delivery was getting ready to take place. I submit to you, there are certain people that will show up in your life and they are not here for a long time. They're just here to help you deliver that thing that you're pregnant with. And so when they begin to show up in your life, those people begin to show up in your life. They are here to help you push out the thing that God has been calling you and purposing you for. Conception, conception, conception. How do I begin to conceive God's purpose in my life? I have to eradicate this area of unbelief that whatever God said is possible for me. Whatever God showed me is possible for me until I eliminate this question as to whether God can, I can never conceive it for me. God, he showed me this then God is able to perform this in my life. I might not know how he's going to do it. I might not know all the details, but I know it's possible for me. So God, I receive it for me in my life right now before I see anything. We'll see on Thursday where Mary has a different response to the same angel. She says, be it unto me according to thy word, which means, God, whatever you said, the way you say, I believe that you can do it in my life. 
Now, one of the things that Elizabeth and Zachariah don't understand is that their yes to God is going to speak volumes when this young girl, Mary, who they're related to, shows up at their doorstep. And the scripture says six months later, Mary shows up one month after Elizabeth starts to come out of of seclusion, showing that she's pregnant. And this miracle that she has in her belly ministers life to this new young child named Mary who's going to conceive our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've said in the past and I'll say in conclusion today, you don't realize how often when God is showing you something, your yes in conceiving his word, how many people are attached to your one yes. God, I'll do what you said for me to do. How many people are going to be blessed because you said yes to God? Yeah, you don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah, you're not sure. Yeah, you might have the experiences in the past where it never happened, where nothing ever manifested in your life. And you're sitting there and saying, Lord, why now? Because God said there is a time and a season for the purpose that I have for your life. And that's why it didn't happen back then. And that's why it's going to happen now. Because you don't understand there's more to this than that simple one prayer that you have. God says there is something that's attached to it. The vision, the plan, the purpose has people attached to it. And while I'm creating and setting the environment, you got to wait. But when the wait is over, that yes will minister life to many people that you don't even know. Let's pray. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you and we praise you. that we won't be people of unbelief. We won't be people of unbelief. Lord, and even in areas where we've been doubting you, God, we'll drown the doubt with just spending time with you and spending time in your word. But Lord, areas where we believe something different, we choose, oh God, to repent of that area. You've been telling us and telling us and telling us it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But we've been saying, but yeah, Lord, but. And telling you and saying things about the natural circumstances. Lord, we choose to repent from believing the natural circumstances over what you say. We choose to believe your word. We believe that your word is truth. We believe that your word supersedes everything that the natural may be displaying to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are able in our lives, in our finances, in our marriages, in our area, even our infertility. God, you are able. There's nothing too hard for you. And so, God, we choose to believe we thank you, Lord, that in the Christmas story, this, this is the, the major thing that you show us, that there are people that just simply choose to believe, and you show us how to not operate in unbelief, but to operate in faith. And so, Lord, as we take this journey in this short series, God, strengthen us in this area of faith, of being open to you to receive what you have for us, to be open again in an area maybe we've closed off to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.